0: reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness learn more today at eomega.org/thrive The Celebrant Foundation and Institute, the preeminent
1: school for ceremony and ritual careers, teaching people to become professional life cycle celebrants via its international online programs, proudly supports spirituality and health and essential conversations with Rabbi Rami. Sign up now for a Celebrant Open House webinar. To learn more, go to celebrantinstitute.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Dr. Amy Cuddy social psychologist and professor at Harvard Business, whose 2012 TED Talk is the second most viewed talk in TED's history. Dr. Cuddy is the author of Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. An excerpt from the book appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. Dr. Cuddy, welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I want to start out with the notion of presence. I mean, it's a word that comes with a lot of history, and maybe even baggage, and you make a point of defining it a certain way. So I just want our listeners to know that when we're talking about presence in this conversation, we're not talking about the 17th century teachings of Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God, or Ram Dass' Be Here Now, or even Thich Nhat Hanh's practice of returning to the present moment. We're talking about something different from that. So can you help us understand what you mean by presence?
2: Yeah. So, so let me just, just a little bit of background quickly. I don't see my definition as being in in, in conflict with those, but I wanted to take a slice of it and make it more accessible because I think what I run into when I talk to people about these ideas is that a lot of people find it daunting and inaccessible. They think that that this is an idea that isn't for them because maybe they're too busy in their lives or they don't have the resources, which I find kind of confusing until I really dug in and, and got the sense that the way a lot of people see presence is... That as this kind of grand notion, and it's something that you you work for your entire life, and you may never get it, and it's for monks, right? I mean, that, that's sort of how people, a lot of people see see presence, and you know I thought that was kind of kind of sad because that meant they they weren't striving for it in their daily lives in kind of more mundane ways, right? So so the way that I define it is, um, it's the state of being attuned to and able to comfortably express your true thoughts and feelings and values and potential. So it's not permanent or transcendent. It comes and goes. It's a moment-to-moment phenomenon. Uh, it emerges when we feel personally
1: powerful. Do you think that what you've done with the concept of presence, rather than coming up with a new word, I mean, you're sort of, uh, in a sense, cutting to the heart of, of what presence is, as you understand it. Do you think that's a uniquely modern phenomenon? I mean, you're a social psychologist. You're bringing science to bear on what would be well, like you said, sort of a daunting, monkish tradition. Do you see this as uniquely contemporary, uniquely modern?
2: I don't know that other people in an experimental science have done quite this with it. But at the same time, you know, I, I do think that there are practitioners who look at it this way, even if they may not explicitly define it this way. Mm. Uh, so I don't, I, it's hard for me to speak to the novelty of it um, I, I, I think that it is, and it seems to be to a lot of the people who I speak with, uh, it seems to be something, you know, a way of thinking of it that they hadn't really thought of, th- thought of yeah.
1: before. I mean, what, what I was thinking of is, is that, you know, a lot of times we talk about the conflict between religion or spirituality and science, but in your work, it seems to me that there is no conflict, that you're simply bringing out uh, a psychological dynamic, or more than that, actually, we'll get into it, but you're bringing out a part of that tradition that, uh, and articulating in a certain way that allows us to practice presence uh, without having to wade through uh, the work of a Carmelite monk from the 1600s.
2: That's what I wanted to be able to do. And again, I, I mean no disrespect to that work. Uh, I just want, I don't want people to feel that they have to do that in order to, to achieve this. And what I, what I, what I found, I, mean, I, I got there by noticing how much it serves people to be present. Right. So, so I thought, wow, it would really be sad if we all missed out on this because we thought it wasn't accessible to us, that we didn't have the time or resources to get there. When you see how much it changes people's lives just to be able to be present in stressful moments, you know, to, to know that they have the power to do that, it's really quite moving. And I think that you can break it down to pretty simple psychological constructs and make it much more accessible to people.
1: So let's go into the psychology of it, because I find some of it really challenging. So you just said a moment ago that presence, you're linking presence with the feeling of being personally powerful. And you say it that it allows us to be, I'm I'm quoting from you, that it allows us to be acutely attuned to our most sincere selves. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what you have in mind when you use the word sincere self. Later on, you talk about authentic self. You know, when I'm reading, I'm thinking, do you mean that there's a separate authentic self separate from the inauthentic self that I am right now that I can plug into or, you know, I, mean, I,
2: I do, I, you know, as a psychologist, um, a, a social psychologist, you know, I, I very much believe that we have, we do have multiple selves um, and that, that that's not pathological, right, that, that everyone is, you know, we're different with, um, our parents, compared to how we might be with our boss or our children, we bring different pieces of ourselves to those different situations. And that's okay. I think that's, that, you know, we can't be exactly the same all the time because we're, we're adapting to meet other people's needs and to fit with them. What I really mean is the self that feels right and real to you. And I came to this because I kept hearing from people talking about challenging situations. And the funny thing is that they would frame it first as I wanted to get this outcome, like I wanted to get this job or I wanted to pitch this deal or I wanted to uh, change someone's opinion of me in some way. But in the end, what they talk about is not the outcome. They feel unsatisfied when they feel they didn't represent themselves accurately that's what they talk about it's not i didn't get the role in the in the movie i didn't feel like i showed them who i really am right so and and i think that's really interesting it's about being seen and we know how fundamental that is that's just such an important need from the you know from the moment that we're born to be seen uh, and to to be understood and so that is the authentic self that's the sincere self it's the self that you Feel best represents you and your values. It's the one that you feel needs to be seen in these situations. So it's it's a lot of pieces. It 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 isn't just um, personality, but it is also it can be in some cases knowledge. Like some people will feel really badly after taking a test because they had the knowledge but they weren't able to access it. That's part of your authentic self. It's that knowledge is part of your authentic self. Or maybe it's a skill. You know, maybe you can sing but you get really nervous and you don't sing well. That singing well is part of your authentic self. They're the parts of your identity that feel core to who you are, that uh, help you do well and do good.
1: So Partly what you're saying that, that the self, you know, my, I have multiple selves. That they are situational. They, they're, like you said, I'm different with my parents than I am with my spouse or my kids or friends. And yet, even though the self arises in some way from the situation, I, it, it's difficult for people to be authentic in the situation. What, what do you think blocks, if the self comes from the situation, why isn't that enough? What blocks the authenticity, well, do you think?
2: I wouldn't quite say the self comes from the situation. I think the self comes from uh, from within, but different pieces of the self become activated in different situations. So I think that that it, it's it's it is it is not it's not external to us. It's internal to us. But different situations make different pieces of the self relevant um, or salient or, or necessary.
1: But is is there something that that you could point to that so this is what blocks it, and this is how we yeah, can do it. Yeah,
2: well, the key thing that I think blocks uh, the authentic self is our fear of judgment and our fear of being kicked out of the clan. You know, that is what blocks it. As soon as we start worrying more about the impression that we're making on others, that's when we cannot access who we are because we are then, we, we really are more worried about what they think of us than we are about what we think of ourselves, we're, we're managing the wrong impression. And, and so that's what basically we, you know, it, 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 it it gets, it, it gets into the gears of our brains, and it prevents us from being in the moment, from hearing what's actually happening instead of what we fear is happening. You know, as soon as we start worrying that this person doesn't like me or they're judging me negatively or they don't think I'm smart enough, which happens all the time in these stressful moments, we're we're just completely unable to bring that real self forth.
1: Do you think that's a learned phenomenon from childhood?
2: It's on a continuum, so I certainly think it's worse for some people than others and that part probably is learned, but no, I would say it's part of our hardwiring to be concerned about what others think of us because we, because we are we're so afraid of being socially excluded, you know, being included is adaptive. And so I think that the, 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 the kernel, the basics of it are hardwired, but I, I think that the, yeah, I guess I would say the fear, the, the intense anxiety that we feel that probably is learned, um, you know, through, uh, many, many different experiences.
1: So, I mean, this is interesting. so, so part of this is you know from like an evolutionary psychology point of view that it like you said it's adaptive that wanting to fit into the group is uh, helps with your survival and so you you really want to tamp down the authentic self if you fear uh, that the authentic self might get you excluded from the group do you get the sense sometimes uh, from talking to people from the people you've you've interviewed for the work that you do that what was evolutionarily val- valuable in the past is no longer valuable in the present
0: At eomega.org/thrive.
2: I think that the, the, the extent of our anxiety about being negatively judged is not adaptive, and I, like I, I think that we've, I think that we, it's, it's based in um, uh, sort of much more primitive fears of being, uh, you know, being totally excluded and not having access to to to, to, to food, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, uh, or being chased by a predator, you know, things that that were really unlikely to face today. Most of us, and 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 of course, that's not true in all situations. Some people do face extreme, uh, extreme fears and hardships like that. But most of us, on a day-to-day basis, are not, you know, going to be chased by a saber-toothed tiger or completely kicked out of the 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 clan um but we're still I, I think it's coming from that place and i think yeah. that to some extent we haven't evolved beyond that and so our nervous system responds in a way that that is really a a, a huge overreaction and when we go into that fight-or-flight mode you know we're just not functioning well at all and and and, and that's you know the fight-or-flight mode definitely is is squashing the authentic self
1: yeah so i mean while you were talking i was thinking of uh, dr herbert benson and his relaxation response saying that you know we evolutionarily we're trained to fight or flight uh, for fight or flight but in most of the situations we find ourselves we can't do either one so we simply stand there being stressed out completely right. out of touch as you would say with your authentic self and, and incapable of really acting authentically in the situation you find ourselves so he he suggests obviously meditation that's that's his his thing you also have a way of dealing with this, um, of the sort of the trap now of, of I can't I can't run away I can't fight. How do yes. I access my my authentic self in, in and, a given situation?
2: And I, by the way, I love his work and and I think the relaxation response work, is, although it's incredibly well tested in the lab, it, it's it's strange to me how little airtime it gets in kind of mainstream psychology because it's I just. Just a kind of sh- shout-out to that work. I think it's incredibly important. And uh, and, and he also talks about you know, how, how breathing can affect the nervous system and, and, and that fight-or-flight response. And I think it, that's where the real connection to the stuff that I've been doing is because I, I look at posture and how we carry our bodies. Uh, and I focus on these expansive, open postures that are associated with power and assertiveness but they also are postures that allow us to breathe deeply in ways that, that 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 basically activate that relaxation response. So I actually think that's a piece of the puzzle that that I have not studied myself in the lab, but I think that that work is is clearly related to what, what I've been doing.
1: Let's talk about the about the postures and the the impact it has on the on brain chemistry. Now mm-hmm. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it until just now in, in terms of, of breathing, uh, but. Uh, and you'll, you'll give me the details here, but it, the, the postures you're talking about, and you can explain them to us, actually changes your, your brain chemistry. It ups the, the testosterone and uh, cortisol levels
2: Yeah, it it decreases cortisol, so that's one of of the, I mean, you really think of it as this continuum from expansion to being so closed that you're trying to make yourself invisible. I talk about power posing and and people get really hung up on sort of the specific poses, but I really think a better way to think about it and and a, a way that we can sort of carry with us throughout the day is that when you are expanding, stretching out your limbs, you know, opening your chest, pulling your shoulders back, um, straightening your back, all of those things are associated with what we do when we feel proud and powerful. So if you think about what you do when you cross the finish line uh, and you've won a race, you immediately throw your arms up in the air. And that's true across dozens of cultures. Uh, It's true even for congenitally blind people who've never seen anyone do this. That's what they do when they win. So when we feel proud and powerful, we expand our bodies. Now, the other thing that happens when we feel proud and powerful is that our circulating levels of testosterone rise and our circulating levels of cortisol drop. And and, uh, one way to think of that is that testosterone is associated with assertiveness, and this is true for women and men. Cortisol is associated with stress. So when we feel proud and powerful... We feel that our hormones match that by by helping us to feel more assertive and more calm. So it's optimizing our brain to deal well in very stressful situations. And that's what we have found in our research is that by having people adopt uh, these expansive postures for just a couple of minutes, we see a significant increase in testosterone and a significant decrease in cortisol. And that's a finding... That's been shown in yoga studies as well, which we actually didn't discover until after we did this work. But uh, the the cobra pose, for example, which is a very expansive, powerful posture, uh, having people adopt that pose for just two to three minutes increases testosterone and decreases cortisol. Now, when you adopt uh, more closed, tense postures, not comforting postures, but but closed postures that are tense, you see the opposite thing happen, testosterone drops and cortisol rises. So basically, we're becoming less confident and more stress reactive.
1: So give us an example of a pose that would uh, lower the cortisol and increase the testosterone. You know, obviously, we're on the radio, so you're going to have to describe it to us.
2: Well, I mean, I I love, I mean, the, the easiest one really is the victory pose, which is arms up, you know, sort of in a V shape and your feet are apart you're standing your chest is out and you are lifting your chin and smiling that's the victory pose so that one is uh i think a really simple one to do the another one that, that people seem to like a lot is the wonder woman or the superman pose so when you stand with your feet apart and again you you know your chest out your shoulders back and your hands on your hips um, that's a that's a very powerful posture and it's it's uh it's it's easy it's an easy one to adopt there are seated postures that are powerful as well, like having your feet up on your desk and, you know, leaning back with your hands behind your head. Uh, it's kind of like the CEO pose, we think of it, or it's the president's pose. You can look at, at lots of pictures of U.S. presidents in the Oval Office sitting in that exact posture. Uh, so th- those are a few examples, but it really can be what, whatever kind of expansion feels comfortable to you.
1: So that, that last one, the president's pose, oftentimes mm-hmm. that's mistaken or that's read by others as a very oh it's sort of an imposing thing it's sort of masculine dominant kind of kind of pose but you're suggesting if i remember this right you're suggesting that you do these by yourself privately before you go into the situation yeah suddenly you're not in the middle of of a stressful moment and suddenly you're 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 taking the Wonder Woman pose.
2: <laughs> That's right. One, one, exactly. And and I, I say, you know, I mean, you'll get kicked out of the building if you do that. You go into right. a job interview yeah. and you put your feet up on the desk, you know, you're <laughs> going to be escorted out of the building. And it was really clear as soon as we started doing this work that we needed to make that message clear because we never intended to tell people to do these things in interactions. We intended to tell them to do these before in private. So when you're going into one of these big challenges, um, the, you know, a difficult conversation, you know, getting the feedback back at work, having an argument with a, a loved one, you know, whatever it is, um, do this for you, walk into that situation. So privacy, if it's a bathroom stall or an elevator or a stairwell or your office or your own home or even or your car. Books, you, know,
1: you fine
2: Right. <laughs> like, oh, that's so perfect. But how could I not have thought about that before? <laughs> Totally, exactly. Change into your costume as well, but 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 actually, you're wearing your costume all the time. That's the, that's it's, it's, I have to take this a little bit further because that's the thing I think people forget. You know, the, the, the like I love the, the the Superman. You know, always has his costume on under his regular clothes. We always we're carrying around that power all the time. It's ours for the taking, right? So it's Personal power is not about power over other people. It's about power over ourselves. It's about power to do things, to control our access to, to our authentic selves. And so we just have to find ways to um, to get in touch with that. And, and yeah, so the big pros is you do in private. But when you're in an interaction, you know, you want your body, you know, it's, it's about intimacy, not intimidation. You know, in that situation, you want to use – open, confident posture, but posture that's also warm and engaging and tells people I'm interested in what you have to say, right? So you can't use these big, I don't want people to out alpha each other. That's no good for anybody. Um, It shuts down the other person. In fact, when when we're faced with body language like that in an interaction, we do the opposite. We tend to shut down and get more closed. So you really don't, I, I, you know, I want people to be feeling powerful in a way that empowers others, not in a way that shuts other people down. It's not zero self-power.
1: Perfect. As we move into the new year, this is a great gift to give yourself uh, to to be able to access your boldest self and to bring it to your biggest challenges. So Amy Cuddy, thank you very much.
2: Thank you for the great questions.
1: You're welcome. My guest today was Amy Cuddy. She's the author of Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. An excerpt from the book appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Amy's work at amycuddy.com. Support for this show comes from the Celebrant Foundation and Institute, an international online professional training program for life cycle celebrants. Sign up now for a Celebrant Open House webinar. To learn more, go to celebrantinstitute.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami, thanks for listening.
0: I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind, Body, Spirit, FM or wherever you get your podcasts.